0: Book Six, Chapter One of the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The League of the Scarlet Pimpernel by Baroness Ortsey. Book Six How Jean Pierre Met the Scarlet Pimpernel, as told by himself. Chapter One ah monsieur the pity of it the pity surely there are sins which le bon dieu himself will condone and if not well i had to risk his displeasure anyhow could i see them both starve monsieur i ask you and monsieur le vicomte had become so thin so thin his tiny delicate bones were almost through his skin and madame le Marquise, an angel monsieur why in the happy olden days before all these traitors and assassins ruled in france monsieur and mademoiselle le marquesa lived only for the child and then to see him dying yes dying there was no shutting one's eyes to that awful fact monsieur le vicomte de Mortain was dying of starvation and of disease there we were all herded together in a couple of attics one of which little more than a cupboard at the top of a dilapidated half-ruined house in the rue des pipots, madame la marquise, monsieur le vicomte, and I-just think of that, monsieur-monsieur le marquis had his chateau, as no doubt you know, on the outskirts of Lyon, a loyal high-born gentleman. Was it likely, I ask you, that he would submit passively to the rule of those execrable revolutionaries who had murdered their king, Outraged their queen and royal family, and, God help them, had already perpetrated every crime and every abomination for which of a truth there could be no pardon either on earth or in heaven? He joined that plucky, but alas, small and ill equipped army of royalists who, unable to save their king, were at least determined to avenge him. Well, you know well enough what happened. The counter revolution failed the revolutionary army brought Lyon down to her knees after a siege of two months she was then marked down as a rebel city and after the abominable decree of october ninth had deprived her of her very name and couthon had exacted bloody reprisals from the entire population for its loyalty to the king the infamous laporte was sent down in order finally to stamp out the lingering remnants of the rebellion by that time monsieur Half the city had been burned down, and one-tenth or more of the inhabitants, men, women, and children, had been massacred in cold blood, whilst most of the others had fled in terror from the appalling scene of ruin and desolation. Laporte completed the execrable work so ably begun by Couthon. He was a very celebrated and skillful doctor at the Faculty of Medicine, now turned into a human hyena in the name of liberty and fraternity. monsieur le marquis contrived to escape with the scattered remnant of the royalist army into switzerland but madame la marquise throughout all these strenuous times had stuck to her post at the chateau like the valiant creature she was when couthon entered Lyon at the head of the revolutionary army the whole of her household fled and i was left alone to look after her and monsieur le vicomte then one day when i had gone into lyon for provisions i suddenly chanced to hear outside an eating-house that which nearly froze the marrow in my old bones a captain belonging to the revolutionary guard was transmitting to his sergeant certain orders which he had apparently just received the orders were to make a perquisition at ten o'clock this same evening in the chateau of Mortain, as the marquis was supposed to be in hiding there and in any event to arrest every man, woman, and child who was found within its walls. Citizen Laporte, the captain concluded, knows for a certainty that the devant Marquesa and her brat are still there, even if the Marquis has fled like the traitor that he is. Those cursed English spies who call themselves the League of the Scarlet Pimpernel have been very active in Lyon of late. And Citizen Laporte is afraid that they might cheat the guillotine of the carcass of those aristos, as they have already succeeded in doing in the case of a large number of traitors. I did not, of course, wait to hear any more of that abominable talk. I sped home as fast as my old legs would carry me. That self-same evening, as soon as it was dark, Madame la Marquise, carrying Monsieur le Vicomte in her arms, and I, carrying a pack with a few necessaries on my back, left the ancestral home of the Mortains never to return to it again. For within an hour of our flight, a detachment of the Revolutionary Army made a descent upon the chateau. They ransacked it from attic to cellar, and finding nothing there to satisfy their lust of hate, they burned the stately mansion down to the ground. We were obliged to take refuge in Lyon, at any rate for a time. Great was the danger inside the city. It was infinitely greater on the high roads, unless we could arrange for some vehicle to take us a considerable part of the way to the frontier, and above all for some of the passports, forged or otherwise, to enable us to pass the various toll gates on the road, where vigilance was very strict. So we wandered through the ruined and deserted streets of the city in search of shelter, but found every charred and derelict house full of miserable tramps and destitutes like ourselves half dead with fatigue madame la marquise was at last obliged to take refuge in one of those houses which was situated in the rue des Pipot. every room was full to overflowing with a miserable wreckage of humanity thrown hither by the tide of anarchy and of bloodshed but at the top of the house we found an attic it was empty save for a couple of chairs a table and a broken-down bedstead on which there was a ragged mattress and pillow here, monsieur, we spent over three weeks. At the end of which time, monsieur Le Vicomte fell ill. And then there followed days, monsieur, through which I would not like my worst enemy to pass. Madame Le Marquise had only been able to carry away in her flight what ready money she happened to have in the house at the time. Securities, property, money belonging to the aristocrats, had been ruthlessly confiscated by the revolutionary government in Lyon. Our scanty resources rapidly became exhausted, and what was left had to be kept for milk and delicacies for Monsieur le Vicomte. I tramped through the streets in search of a doctor, but most of them had been arrested on some paltry charge or other of rebellion, whilst others had fled from the city. There was only that infamous Laporte, a vastly clever doctor I knew, but as soon take a lamb to a hungry lion as the Vicomte de Martain to that bloodthirsty cutthroat then one day our last franc went and we had nothing left madame la Marquise had not touched food for two days i had stood at the corner of the street begging all the day until i was driven off by the gendarmes i had only obtained three sous from the passers-by i bought some milk and took it home for monsieur le vicomte the following morning when i entered the larger attic i found that madame la marquesa had fainted from inanition. I spent the whole of the day begging in the streets and dodging the guard, and even so I only collected four sous. I could have got more, perhaps, only that at about midday, the smell of food from an eating-house turned me sick and faint, and when I regained consciousness, I found myself huddled up under a doorway and evening-gathering in fast around me if madame la Marquise could go two days without food i ought to go four i struggled to my feet fortunately i had retained possession of my four sous else of a truth i would not have had the courage to go back to the miserable attic which was the only home i knew i was wending my way along as fast as i could for i knew that madame la Marquise would be getting terribly anxious when, just as I turned into the Rue Blanche, I spied two gentlemen, obviously strangers, for they were dressed with a luxury and care with which we had long ceased to be familiar in Lyon, uh, walking rapidly towards me. A moment or two later they came to a halt, not far from where I was standing, and I heard the taller one of the two say to the other in English, a language with which I am vaguely conversant, All right again this time? What, Tony? Both laughed merrily like a couple of schoolboys playing truant, and then they disappeared under the doorway of a dilapidated house, whilst I was left wondering how two such elegant gentlemen dared to be abroad in Lyon these days, seeing that every man, woman, and child who was dressed in anything but threadbare clothes was sure to be insulted in the streets for an aristocrat, and as often as not summarily arrested as a traitor. However, I had other things to think about, and had already dismissed the little incident from my mind, when at the bottom of the Rue Blanche I came upon a knot of gaffers, men and women, who were talking and gesticulating very excitedly outside the door of a cook-shop. At first I did not take much notice of what was said. My eyes were glued to the front of the shop, on which were displayed sundry delicacies of the kind which makes a wretched, starved beggar's mouth-water as he goes by. A roast capon especially attracted my attention, together with a bottle of red wine. These looked just the sort of luscious food which Madame la Marquise would relish. Well, sir, the law of God says, Thou shalt not covet, and no doubt that I committed a grievous sin when my hungry eyes fastened upon that roast capon and that bottle of burgundy. We also know the stories of Judas Iscariot and of Jacob's children. Who sold their own brother Joseph into slavery. Such a crime, monsieur. I took upon my conscience then, for just as the vision of Madame la Marquise eating that roast capon and drinking that burgundy rose before my eyes, my ears caught some fragments of the excited conversation which was going on all around me. He went this way, someone said. No, that, protested another. There's no sign of him now, anyway the owner of the shop was standing on his own doorstep his legs wide apart one arm on his wide hip the other still brandishing the knife wherewith he had been carving for his customers the impudent rascal flaunting such fine clothes like the aristo that he is bah these cursed english they are aristo's all of them and this one with his followers is no better than a spy paid by that damned English government to murder all our patriots and to rob the guillotine of her just dues. They say he had a hand in the escape of the Cie-devant Dieu de Sermieux and all his brats from the very tumbrel which was taking them to execution. A cry of loathing and execration followed this statement. There was vigorous shaking of clenched fists and then a groan of baffled rage. We almost had him this time if it had not been for these confounded, ill-lighted streets. I would give something, concluded the shopkeeper, if we could lay him by the heels. What would you give, citizen Dompierre, queried the woman in the crowd, with a ribald laugh, one of your roast capons? Aye, little mother, he replied jovially, and a bottle of my best burgundy to boot, to drink confusion to that meddlesome Englishman and his crowd, and a speedy promenade up the steps of the guillotine monsieur i assure you that at that moment my heart absolutely stood still the tempter stood at my elbow and whispered and i delicately smothered the call of my conscience i did what joseph's brethren did what brought judas iscariot to hopeless remorse there was no doubt that the hue and cry was after the two elegantly dressed gentlemen whom i had seen enter the dilapidated house in the rue blanche for a second or two i closed my eyes and deliberately conjured up the vision of Madame La Marquise fainting for lack of food, and of Monsieur Le Vicomte dying for want of sustenance. Then I worked my way to the door of the shop, and accosted the burly proprietor with as much boldness as I could muster. The two Englishmen passed by me at the top of the Rue Blanche, I said to him. They went into a house. I can show you which it is. In a moment, I was surrounded by a screeching, gesticulating crowd. I told my story as best I could. There was no turning back now from the path of cowardice and of crime. I saw that brute, Dompierre pick up the largest roast capon from the front of his shop, together with a bottle of that wine which I had coveted. Then he thrust both these treasures into my trembling hands and said, En avant! And we all started to run up the street, shouting, Death to the English spies! I was the hero of the expedition. Dompierre and another man carried me, for I was too weak to go as fast as they wished. I was hugging the capon and the bottle of wine to my heart. I had need to do that so as to still the insistent call of my conscience, for I felt a coward, a mean, treacherous, abominable coward. When we reached the house, and I pointed it out to Dompierre, the crowd behind us gave a cry of triumph. In the topmost story, a window was thrown open, two heads appeared silhouetted against the light within, and a cry of triumph below was answered by a merry, prolonged laugh from above. I was too dazed to realize very clearly what happened after that. Dompierre, Pierre, I know, kicked open the door of the house, and the crowd rushed in in his wake. I managed to keep my feet and to work my way gradually out of the crowd. I must have gone on mechanically, almost unconsciously, for the next thing that I remember with any distinctness was that I found myself once more speeding down the Rue Blanche with all the yelling and shouting some little way behind me. With blind instinct, too, I had clung to the capon and the wine, the price of my infamy. I was terribly weak and felt sick and faint, but I struggled on for a while until my knees refused me service and I came down on my two hands, whilst the capon rolled away into the gutter and the bottle of burgundy fell with a crash against the pavement, scattering its precious contents in every direction. There I lay, wretched, despairing, hardly able to move, when suddenly I heard rapid and firm footsteps immediately behind me, and the next moment two firm hands had me under the arms, and I heard a voice saying, Steady, old friend, can you get up? There, is that better? The same firm hands raised me to my feet. At first, I was too dazed to see anything, but after a moment or two, I was able to look around, and by the light of a street lantern immediately overhead, I recognized the tall, elegantly dressed Englishman and his friend, whom I had just betrayed to the fury of Dompierre and a savage mob. I thought that I was dreaming and I suppose that my eyes betrayed the horror which I felt, for the stranger looked at me scrutinizingly for a moment or two, then he gave the quaintest laugh I had ever heard in all my life, and said something to his friend in English, which this time I failed to understand. By my faith, he said in perfect French, so that I began to doubt if he was an English spy after all. I verily believe that you are the clever rogue, eh? who obtained a roast capon and a bottle of wine from that fool Dompierre. he and his boon companions are venting their wrath on you old Compeer. they are calling you liar and traitor and cheat in the intervals of wrecking what is left of the house out of which my friend and i have long since escaped by climbing up the neighboring gutter pipes and scrambling over the adjoining roofs Monsieur, will you believe me when I say that he was actually saying all this in order to comfort me? I could have sworn to that, because of the wonderful kindliness which shone out of his eyes, even through the good-humored mockery wherewith he obviously regarded me. Do you know what I did then, Monsieur? I just fell on my knees and loudly thanked God that he was safe, at which both he and his friend once again began to laugh for all the world like two schoolboys who had escaped the whipping rather than two men who were still threatened with death then it was you said the taller stranger who was still laughing so heartily that he had to wipe his eyes with his exquisite lace handkerchief may god forgive me i replied the next moment his arm was again round me i clung to him as to a rock for of a truth i had never felt a grasp so steady and withal so gentle and kindly, as was his around my shoulders. I tried to murmur words of thanks, but again that wretched feeling of sickness and faintness overcame me, and for a second or two it seemed to me as if I were slipping into another world. The stranger's voice came to my ear as it were through cotton wool. The man is starving, he said. Shall we take him over to your lodgings, Tony? They are safer than mine. He may be able to walk in a minute or two if not i can carry him my senses at this partly returned to me and i was able to protest feebly no no i i must go back i must kind sirs madame la marquise will be getting so anxious no sooner were these foolish words out of my mouth than i could have bitten my tongue out for having uttered them and yet somehow it seemed as if it was the stranger's magnetic personality his magic voice and kindly act towards me who had so basely sold him to his enemies which had drawn them out of me he gave a low prolonged whistle madame la marquise he queried dropping his voice to a whisper now to have uttered madame la marquise de Mortain's name here in lyon where every aristocrat was termed a traitor and sent without trial to the guillotine was in itself an act of criminal folly and yet you may believe me monsieur or not there was something within me just at that moment that literally compelled me to open my heart out to this stranger whom i had so basely betrayed and who requited my abominable crime with such gentleness and mercy before i fully realized what i was doing monsieur I had blurted out the whole history of Madame la Marquise's flight and of Monsieur le Vicomte's sickness to him. He drew me under the cover of an open doorway, and he and his friend listened to me without speaking a word until I had told them my pitiable tale to the end. When I had finished, he said quietly, Take me to see Madame la Marquise, old friend. Who knows? Perhaps I may be able to help. Then he turned to his friend. Will you wait for me at my lodgings, Tony, he said, and let folks in Hastings know that I may wish to speak with them on my return? He spoke like one who had been accustomed all his life to give command, and I marveled how his friend immediately obeyed him. Then when the latter had disappeared down the dark street, the stranger once more turned to me. Lean on my arm, good old friend, he said, and we must try and walk as quickly as we can. The sooner we allay the anxieties of Madame la Marchesa, the better. I was still hugging the roast capon with one arm. With the other I clung to him as together we walked in the direction of the Rue des People. On the way, we halted at a respectable eating-house, where my protector gave me some money, wherewith to buy a bottle of good wine and sundry provisions and delicacies which we carried home with us. End of Book 6 Chapter 1